I'm excited to begin a new sermon series tonight, this time on the book of Judges. Before our summer in the Psalms, we finished Joshua. Now we're going right into Judges, and we'll do Ruth after that, um, Lord willing. Tonight, because we're going to be reading all of chapter 1 plus a few verses in chapter 2, we'll just forego a New Testament reading. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word and turn to Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, 
Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres in Ajalon and in Sha'albim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, The people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Not every reading from Judges will be quite so long. It's good for us, though, to get that full sweep of this introduction to the book in one glance as we try to get a feel for the major themes and the big picture of what this book is all about. Uh, This week, we had an interesting dinner table conversation with the kids, uh, sparked by some things they had been learning in history. Um, First of all, I'm sure you guys talked about this at your kitchen tables this week. The question came up, were Brutus and Cassius right or wrong? when they attacked and killed Julius Caesar in the Senate, in Rome. So we talked about that for a while. 
access my memory of that situation and its implications. Well, then, um, I'm, I know you talked about this this week. They told me they'd been reading about the Norman invasion of England in 1066, William the Conqueror and, Ang- and the Anglo-Saxons. And uh, At one point, one of the younger ones uh, perked up and asked, I think, a very reasonable question. She wanted to know, wait a second, in that story, who was the good guy and who was the bad guy? It was a good question. And it led, really, to a pretty rich family conversation about history, how to think about it, and how history is different from fairy tales. Because in fairy tales, fairy tales are often very simple, where the good is obviously and purely good. And the bad is obviously and purely bad. And that's one of the things we love about fairy tales. We see that black and white contrast and there is a lot of truth in fairy tales, isn't there? Well, there really is good and evil in the world. And there is a fundamental conflict between the two. And, and evil is often very strong. But good will prevail in the end. But you see, in the, in the middle of history, in the thick of things, when you're dealing with individual people and events along the way, things are often a lot more complicated than in fairy tales, aren't they? It's not always easy to divide stories up into the good guys and the bad guys because nobody in the history is purely good. And for that matter, few few people in the history are really purely bad either. Sometimes people seeking to do the right thing end up doing terrible things. And sometimes people do some good, but, but they don't go all the way. They leave things undone. They stop before the good is complete. Well, some of those things, many of those things that are true of history in general are true of Bible history in particular, and they are especially true in a book like Judges. There really is only one purely good character in this history. And you know who that is. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. All of the human characters in this book are limited by their ignorance and their weakness. They're corrupted by sin. And yet, the wonder of this book is that the Lord is still present. The Lord is active all along the way. It is his voice, it's his evaluation of things that really counts. And it is his grace that ultimately overcomes. And that's really the story of the book of Judges. Let me give you some headings for thinking about this opening salvo of the book um, first, and then we'll begin. So first, a leadership crisis, verses 1 through 26 of chapter 1. Second will be a list of compromises, verses 27 to 36. And then third, the Lord's confrontation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So a leadership crisis, a list of compromises, and the Lord's confrontation. So first, that leadership crisis. The very opening line is very important. After the death of Joshua after the death of Joshua. 
Uh, It's interesting, if you go back to Joshua chapter 1, Joshua begins a very similar way after the death of Moses. After the death of Moses. So Joshua and Judges both begin at a time of major leadership transition for Israel. There's also a great difference between those two situations because when Moses dies, there's a very clear single successor who's going to fill Moses' shoes and is going to um, lead in Israel in, in much the same way, in a very similar way to the way that Moses led. After the death of Joshua, though, that succession is not quite so obvious. Uh, leadership is a major theme throughout Judges. Uh, sadly, by and large, it's a story of leadership failures, one after the other. Not entirely. Um, but even when Israel's human leaders fail in this book, or when they die, as in verse 1, does that mean that Israel is completely leaderless? Is Israel completely leaderless? Is there ever a time when they have no one to look to for direction, for vision, for strength? Of course not. Israel does have a leader, always. And that leader is the Lord. Of course, a lot of the problems arise when they lose sight of precisely that reality. But in verse 1, here at the very beginning, it is to the Lord indeed that Israel turns in this time of transition. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first? Who is to lead us in this next phase of the conquest? Uh, that Joshua had exhorted them to carry on even after his death, to bring to completion. Um, Israel is being faithful here to the degree that they recognize the Lord as their ultimate leader. And as they look to the Lord to give them uh, other leaders, human leaders. Um, So in this particular case, the tribe of Judah is that leading tribe who is going to show the way, is going to kick off this uh, renewed quest to finish what Israel started under Joshua. And in general, things go pretty well in this first section. It says, The Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, verse 4. And it's uh, important that the Lord is the subject of the sentence. The Lord is the one who's giving the Canaanites into their hand. Um, but at the same time, even with this opening success, there is right along with it an early hint, just a hint, but a clear hint that things are not quite as they ought to be. You'll get this King Adoni Bezek. His name just means the Lord of Bezek, basically the king of this particular city. Uh, he was himself was a pretty powerful warlord in his heyday before Israel came along. It sounds like he had defeated many kings himself. And when he did this, he had this practice of maiming their hands and feet, cutting off their thumbs and their big toes, um, to show just how helpless they were uh, compared to him, the great Adoni Bezek, the great Lord of Bezek. Well, when, when he, in turn, gets defeated by Judah and Simeon, um, that same thing that he used to do to those kings is now done to him. This ironic twist. The tables are turned. And on the one hand, Adoni Bezek kind of recognizes the, the poetic justice in this. He says, as I have done, so God has repaid me. But when we read biblical narrative, biblical history, 
We need, to under, we need to pay attention, kind of clue into who is speaking, who is talking about God. Don't you find it curious, as one writer points out, that the person giving the theological lesson from this episode is a Canaanite? But then on the other hand, what have the people of Judah and Simeon just done? They have acted just like that Canaanite, Right? They have done the same thing to him that he used to do to the kings he defeated. There's one commentator, uh, Daniel Block, who uses a phrase repeatedly. It's a big theme of his commentary. I think it's very helpful for understanding um, the trajectory of this book of Judges. Uh, he He calls Judges the story of the canonization of Israel. The canonization of Israel. Um... In other words, just very simply, Judges is tracing how how Israel um, is more and more assimilating, becoming like the Canaanites instead of driving them out like they were supposed to do. They're blending in. They're becoming like the people around them instead of ridding the land of Canaanite uh, civilization. So even in this moment of victory, even at this point where Judah's doing actually pretty well, isn't it odd that they're acting like Canaanite, the Canaanite king they've defeated, and it's the Canaanite king who is giving the God-centered interpretation. It's just that something's off. The superstructure looks pretty good, but there's this crack in the foundation. It's just a hairline crack so far, but it's an early sign of trouble. Let's jump ahead to verse 11 now. So there's the story of Caleb and his daughter Aksa and, and her husband Othniel, which also appears in the book of Joshua. It's repeated here, uh, but it has a, uh, its own significance in this context that's different from where it comes in Joshua. It's significant for a few reasons. Uh, for one thing, it sets up a motif for the whole book um, having to do with the very great influence that the women in this history have from time to time on the leading men, both for good, uh, you could think of Deborah as an example of that, and sometimes for bad. You could think of of Delilah as a clear example of that. In this case, it's an influence for good. Uh, So Caleb and Othniel are being presented pretty favorably as people who are acting faithfully. Um, But Aksa is able to see something that maybe they do not. She's able to see that this land is going to need access to water if it's going to thrive. And so she's able to influence these two men for good and for the good of her family. We're going to see that theme of the influence of women on the leading men of Israel throughout the book. Uh, There's another reason Aksa is important here um, as a woman in this early part of the book. Uh, And here I want to introduce something new I haven't mentioned yet, which is that there are uh, a lot of very striking connections in terms of the events and the imagery and even the wording between Judges chapter 1 and the few chapters that end the book of Judges, the the beginning of the book and the end of the book. And if you're familiar a little bit with Judges, remember that the end of Judges is a very dark conclusion. Things go terribly wrong. The, The wheels completely come off for Israel. Um, one example of this connection doesn't have to do with Aksa, um, is verse one, chapter one, verse one: "Who shall go up first for us?" Israel is asking that question at the beginning of the book. At the end of the book, in chapter twenty, they ask that question again: 
who shall go up first for us. But by then, it's not to fight against the Canaanites. Who shall go up first to fight for us against the people of Benjamin? So by the end of the book, they're fighting one another. Why? Because they've become like Canaanites. Benjamin has been acting like a Canaanite tribe. Okay, so back to Aksa. We could ask, why is there this detail about her riding on the, on the donkey and dismounting? and Why all of these particular details? Um, and we could, if we look at just chapter 1, we could come up with lots of creative solutions. Or, oh, maybe this, we could just speculate about what exactly that scene looked like and why it was significant. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. The reason the donkey comes up is she's not the only woman in the book of Judges to ride on a donkey. At the end of the book, there's another woman riding on a donkey, but under very different circumstances, tragically different circumstances, and that's the Levite's concubine. If you're not familiar with the book of Judges, we'll get there eventually, but just suffice it to say for now that there's a woman who has been brutally assaulted by Israelites, by the men of of the Israelite city of Gibeah. And after she is killed, her, her, uh, the, the Levite, basically her husband, loads her onto it, uh, puts her body, her corpse, on this donkey. And so you have these two women on two donkeys at the beginning and end of the book raising the question, how are women being treated in Israel under these different circumstances? Are they being protected and provided for and cared for as the law of God teaches, as you would expect in a properly functioning covenant community? And here in chapter 1, the answer is yes, with Aksa. By the end of the book, there's a grave contrast. Okay. Well, um, Judah continues to have some military success, which is good. But but look now at verse 19. Verse 19, there's a new element introduced. The Lord was with Judah, it says, and he took possession of the hill country, but... He could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Okay. Now, we need to be careful how we assess what the historian is trying to get across to us here. I want to ask, um, based on the things that we saw happen in the book of Joshua, you remember the Jordan River going dry so that people could walk across. You remember the walls of Jericho falling down. You remember the sun standing still in the sky. Do you think that some iron chariots were going to keep the Lord from giving Judah victory in the plains just as he did in the hills? No. No, that's not the point here. The Lord has not failed. His power has not reached its limit somehow. When we read this in context, we should understand that the historian here is giving us Judah's reasons, Judah's excuse, really, for not carrying out their part of the conquest all the way, as they were supposed to do. They did well up to a point, but then they stopped short. Um, G.K. Chesterton once said, this is one of my favorite Chesterton quotes, he says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The conquest of the plains of Judah They found difficult, uh, the conquest of the plains, Judah found difficult, and so they left it untried. 
That's what's happened here. Had they tried it, no doubt they would have found the Lord to be faithful and mighty there just as well as everywhere else. But they never got the opportunity to see that. And we could ask, were they afraid? Were they lazy? Were they just, were they just tired? Tired of fighting? Tired of carrying on this work anymore? Surely we've done enough by now. Surely we've gone far enough, at least for this year. Let's just stop here. And they never pick it up again. But now we have to look at the consequences of that choice in verse 21. When the people of Benjamin don't drive out the Jebusites, for instance, what do those Jebusites do? They just end up living side by side with them, even though that's precisely what the Lord had warned Israel against. Don't live side by side with the Canaanites. That's not going to end well for you. They're going to be a snare to you. They're going to lead you astray. Uh, We could look now at Joseph in verse 22. Um, In general, again, this episode seems pretty good. The Lord was with them, it says. Things aren't all bad yet. Um, In fact, they're mostly good. You see this episode where they promise protection to this this fellow who shows them the way into the city. And you might think, well, that doesn't seem too bad. They're just basically doing what the spies did for Rahab at Jericho, right? Oh, they promised her protection for her helping them out. Okay, they might have wanted to explain it that way. But there's a difference here, isn't there? What ended up happening with Rahab? What's the end of Rahab's story? Well, Rahab expresses her faith in the God of Israel, and by the end of her story, she has become a part of the covenant community. Rahab is basically incorporated in to Israel. That's not what happens with this guy. This guy goes and he rebuilds a new city somewhere else and calls it by the same name as the city the people of Joseph just destroyed. Lose kind of undermines their whole victory, right? Lose lives on through this man that that they've allowed to let go because they thought it'd be clever to win the city in this way. Well, in the first 26 verses, um, there's a lot of good, but there are these hints of problems mixed in. So mostly good with some problems. That kind of gets reversed, though, beginning in verse 27. Um, We change gears in verse 27 as we come to what we're calling a list of compromises. A list of compromises. And now, just tribe after tribe after tribe, the historian is hammering away at this point at what they did not do. That they did not drive out the Canaanites of the land. And that's the highlight in each of these stories. The Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Um, Instead of following through on God's directives for the conquest, they decide, well, wait, what if, we, what if we just make these people work for us? Why waste all of that free labor? You can imagine all the ways they would rationalize this. Well, this is good for the covenant people to have the other nations, you know, helping us to grow stronger and more wealthy. Isn't that what God wants for us, you know, to be, to be happy and, and rich and have these people under our power? That's just as good as driving them out, Right. But that was not the mission. That is not what God had commanded them to do. That was opportunism. It was not faithfulness. It starts with the tribe of Manasseh. gets worse with the Asherites. With with the Asherites, it says, The Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. The Asherites... Well, just two verses earlier with Zebulun, it said the Canaanites lived among them. Do you see how it's gotten worse now? There's this drift... That's continued. Now, it's the Israelites 
who are living among the Canaanites. It's one thing to have them living in your house, but now you've gone, you've moved in to their house. You're living with them. The problem is deepening. And then worst of all, you get to Dan. Verse 34, where Israel actually starts losing territory to the Canaanites. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. And so line by line, the historian is painting this picture of terrible failure, one after another. Israel had a clear mission from the Lord, and they had the promise of God that he was going to give them all the resources they needed to carry it out. They had nothing to fear. They had everything to gain, nothing to lose by obeying the Lord. But they've traded it all. They've traded that mission for this lethargy, this compromise, this profit, this opportunism. Now, if you said that to one of these tribes, it was like, that's not, that's, no. That's not the way I would describe it. That's not the way I see it. They would probably want to tell you, you're not appreciating everything we have done. Look at all the territory we have conquered. Look at all the cities we have occupied. We have worked really hard. We've done our share. Now we just want a little bit of peace. We want to enjoy this land now. We don't want to just have war all the time and that's good, isn't it? Isn't it good to settle down in this land, actually start living in it? Sure, there are some pockets of Canaanites here and there, okay, communities of Canaanites, big, big groups of Canaanites, and they're mixed in with us. But, but listen, we can handle that, right? We can handle it because we're a lot more powerful than they are. We've practically done what God told us to do. More or less, we've done what God said, Right? And you can imagine all the ways that they could justify. We're very good at justifying ourselves, aren't we? At spinning things so that we come off seeming better than we really are, more faithful than we really are. We can describe our compromise and failure in ways that sound very righteous. Or at least excusable. I mean, they have chariots of iron, right? There's no way the Lord would want us to just go up and get mown down by these chariots of iron. It's like they have tanks and we have horses. How do you expect us to go fight against them. There's got to be limits to what God's told, to, to the commandment of the conquest. Well, they can think that all they want. They can rationalize, they can justify, they can excuse themselves. But they cannot escape the Lord's word. God sees things his own way. And it's his way of seeing that ultimately counts, that ultimately matters. And at the beginning of chapter 2, there comes in that divine perspective on all of this. This is yet another example of a place where the opening of of Judges um, matches something in the end of Judges. Many scholars believe that Bochim, which means weepers, um, is actually a descriptive name for the city of Bethel. Um, At the very end of Judges, there's a parallel scene where the people of Israel go to Bethel, and it says there they lifted up their voices and wept. They're weeping for a different reason um, than here in verse 4 where you see that phrase. Um, The nation at that point is in shambles because of the sin of the Benjaminites. It's resulted in a very bloody civil war. They've just, instead of uh, slaughtering Canaanites, 
they have just slaughtered the members of one of their own tribes, the Benjaminites. Everything is just turned completely upside down from the way it's supposed to be. This shouldn't be happening to us. They're thinking, how did we get here? And so they go up to meet with the Lord, possibly at this very same place, and at least with this very same action of weeping bitterly in his presence. These two episodes of Israel weeping before God. They bookend the history of Judges. They're weeping before him at the beginning. They're weeping before him at the end. And this is very significant for interpreting the whole book. What's what's happening here in chapters 1 and 2 is laying the groundwork for the disaster that's coming later. It all starts here. By the end of the book, we've got to be asking the question, how did we get here? How did we sink so low? The answer was right there in chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's because you didn't stay on your mission. You didn't drive out the Canaanites. The Lord is giving Israel here his sovereign assessment of what's happened, and he's warning them what the consequences are going to be. And the rest of the book is going to bear that out repeatedly, time after time after time. The Lord says, I... I said I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no, no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? And so now God says, I'm not going to continue fighting for you. I'm not going to drive them out anymore. These Canaanites are now going to remain side by side with you, and they're going to be a snare, thorns in your sides, just like I said was going to happen. And so it's no wonder that the people weep. And it's furthermore, no wonder that we find them weeping again, all the more bitterly, in chapter 21. Now, I guess I've set a pretty somber tone for our study of this book. I want to acknowledge there are going to be some very hopeful, glorious moments in the book of Judges. There are some real bright spots. There are going to be some moments of great victory and deliverance and triumph by the grace of God, and we'll get there. But for now, it's intentional that I I really think it's important for us just to linger here, brokenhearted with the people of Israel here at Bochim, the city of weepers. We're about to sing together in just a couple minutes a hymn It says, we have not served thee as we ought. Alas, the duties left undone. The work with little fervor wrought. The battles lost or scarcely won. So we people of God living today, along with Israel, we have reason to lament what that commentator calls the canonization of our hearts the canonization of our families, the canonization of the church to one degree or another, ways that we have tolerated, not just tolerated, but embraced, not just embraced, but but assimilated, blended in, become indistinguishable from our surroundings in a world that's in rebellion against God when it comes to how we think, when it comes to how we speak, how we talk about life, how, what we really treat as important, what we devote ourselves to as it's displayed, not just in what we say, but in how we actually spend our time and our resources and our focus, what we daydream about. 
We have not feared thee as we ought, we're going to sing, nor bowed beneath thine awesome eye. We have not loved thee as we ought. Thy presence we have coldly sought. All of these things, these are the heart causes of the, the compromise. And the mixture of evil in with our own devotion to the Lord. See, the Lord has given us a mission, a work to do, as he did for Israel. He's called us, as he called these people, to be distinct. He's called us to be unyieldingly loyal to him and to him alone, to have his purposes, his calling on our lives, be all-consuming for us, to be our singular focus. He's called us to be unrelenting in our pursuit of gospel-driven service and proclamation. The Lord has given us a mission just like he gave one to Israel, but how sluggish we are, how quick we are to justify and to excuse our slacking off, and how, how proud, conceited we can be about our, the little accomplishments that we do have, and how relaxed and nonchalant we can be about the grave omissions in our obedience to the Lord. And in this way, Judges is a sobering warning for the church. It's a sobering warning for each and every one of us gathering to hear it proclaimed to us. But I also want you to know that there is hope for us in this book, too. There is hope for us. There is hope because Israel's covenant God in the book of Judges never just abandons Israel, even at the lowest points. He never just walks away. He comes to them. He comes with rebuke, yes. He comes confronting them, yes, here in chapter 2. But he came, didn't he? He spoke. He provoked in them by his word, this weeping, this sorrow, which is the beginning of change. This sorrow, this weeping that never would have come if they were left to themselves, if he had not ever moved towards them as their God. So even in this rebuke of God is shadowed for us his grace. What we need to understand about God from this opening of the book of Judges is that God is a God who moves towards sinful people who have royally messed up their side of the covenant. He moves towards us in love and grace and he opens to us supernaturally the possibility of repentance. He didn't have to do that for any of us. He didn't have to do it for Israel. That repentance starts with weeping. It starts with a true, heartfelt sorrow over our sin. We're not very good at weeping over our sin. Something we should pray about. That's the way repentance begins. But I also want you to know it doesn't end there. Because this God moves towards us not just with that word of rebuke. That same God has moved towards us in grace as well. He's moved towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who 
not only came to us, but obeyed for us. Without compromise. Without ever saying, well, I've, I've done enough for them. I don't want to do any more. Let's call that enough for these wretched people who don't deserve me anyway. No, what did the Lord Jesus do? He did not let up in his mission that the Father gave to him until he had gone all the way to the cross and he had borne every last one of your sins in the depths of its penalty that you deserved, bearing that judgment on all of our covenant failures and all of our covenant compromises and lethargy and failure to go all the way. He bore that for us so that we could know a very different outcome. That's the gospel of God's grace towards sinners like the Israelites and like us who don't deserve it. So just going back to where we began, I guess we could ask the question, who are the good guys in Judges 1 and 2 so far? Really, the point of this history is that God's people are not good by themselves. But that God continues to be good to them anyway. You need to understand, I need to understand, you are not the hero of your life story. You are not the hero of your own life story. Even at your very best, you fall so far short. There are cracks in the foundation of even your very best attempts at serving God. But you also need to know from this book that God's grace is ever so much greater than even your worst sin. And yes, he may rebuke you. And yes, he may lead you through a time of weeping and chastening and suffering. But in the end, it is always his grace that prevails for those he loves. So let's bear that in mind tonight as we go to our homes. And let's bear that in mind over the coming weeks as we continue exploring this book together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that naturally we share much more in common with these feeble and sinful Israelites than separates us from them. But Lord, there is something that does set us apart, and that's that you have given us the Lord Jesus. Lord, nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to his cross we claim. We pray that you would teach us, Lord. We pray that you would work in our hearts a true sorrow. Even, Lord, give us the grace of being able to weep over our sin instead of having hearts so hard that it doesn't bother us anymore. Lord, lead us to Bochim, we pray, so that we might receive there your forgiveness and your grace and your blessing a broken and contrite heart you've promised you will not despise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.